Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everybody. My guest today is Jordan Taylor the co-founder and head of product at CISO, a company building a better labor marketplace for agriculture. CISO provides agricultural employers with an end-to-end labor solution, which encompasses recruiting, visa automation, and workforce compliant management software. Welcome to the podcast, Jordan. Thanks, really excited to be here, and thank you for having me. Well, I saw in your background that you spent some time at Farmers Business Network, which I want to get into in a little bit because I am absolutely yeah. fascinated by this company. But just curious whether you grew up in an agricultural family or ultimately how you got into the space in the first place. Yeah, so my mom grew up on a farm in rural Illinois. And I'm originally from Montana, um, not growing up in agriculture in Montana. But we spent uh, about eight summers down there when I was a kid. So I would move down there live with my grandparents, um, kind of shadow them on the farm and see everything that was going on. So I've definitely, you know, had an interest and exposure to the industry from a pretty young age. Nice. I also grew up in, uh, well, I, I came from Illinois and also from the Midwest. So like, like those nice. type of Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well then, you know, you spent some time in tech and then you went to Farmers Business Network, which is not a normal company that a lot of people from tech would have heard of. But I came across this company maybe four, four and a half years ago and became obsessed with this business model. And I think it applies to so many other places. But can you walk the listeners through what is Farmers Business Network? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess I'll start with just how I heard of it, because as you touch on, it's definitely uh, an unconventional path to go from, you know, enterprise SaaS uh, at, at Dropbox to, you know, building ag tech software for farmers. Um, so I was kind of in the mindset of wanting, wanting to do uh, something that was more mission oriented, um, something that kind of had a tangible impact. And so agriculture definitely checked that box. And around that time, I visited the family that I mentioned in Illinois. And I noticed that the machines they use to harvest all the grain in the field um, are now all equipped with computers, which they weren't, you know, 15 years ago when I was spending summers on the farm. And so when I asked them, probe, you know, what are they doing with all the data? Uh, they mentioned Farmers Business Network. And so essentially at that point, FBN was a software platform that took their data, aggregated it and anonymized it with uh, thousands of other farmers data, and then gave them a product that um, enables them to make better decisions on their farm. So for example, you know, planting the best variety for the soil type, knowing when to harvest your crop, um, knowing how much fertilizer to put on in a field, that sort of thing. What I loved about this model that I thought was so clever and very unique is that it was a give to get model, if I heard, if I remember correctly, where yep. farmers were essentially giving away their data for free because they would get back in return the aggregate data of thousands of other farmers on all the things you mentioned and more. Um, how did how did people convince farmers at the beginning to kind of bootstrap that network and get them to give away what is probably the you know the crown jewels for free? Yeah, for sure. So the the idea actually originated from a group of Midwest farmers 
And I think the motivation, um, you know, really lies in a lot of latent frustration that, that farmers in the Midwest have towards the powers that be in the industry. Um, so to make, you know, it could be a longer story, quite simple, but, but still accurate. They're extremely marginalized, both um, by companies that sell them, the seeds, chemicals, fertilizers, what we call inputs that they put into the field, as well as companies um, that buy their output. Um, so most of these companies are oligopolies, arguably monopolies. Um, they can exercise a lot of, of price control over all of the services and goods that they're offered to farmers. So there's you know, a lot of kind of built up frustration and, and kind of a desire to um, aggregate information amongst farmers and push back. And so the co-founders of FBN uh, were pretty tied into agriculture, were aware of this, got connected with those farmers. And so they started piloting the idea um, quite simply, I think, by hustling, getting on the ground and, you know, kind of going door to door within a narrow region in Iowa and convincing people that, hey, if we can get, you know, a couple hundred people to contribute data, something really interesting might happen. And so I think it was it was really well executed in the sense that, um, you know, they worked very hard to accumulate the data early on in, in a short period of time. But then they simultaneously really effectively built a brand around being farmers first. And specifically what that meant was, you know, we're going to be a company that um, works for farmers, not against them. And we are going to help even the playing field so that it's easier for you to remain viable. Um, and I think the most important message is, as a family farmer, you know, you'll be able to keep this in the family and, and remain solvent, you know, for decades to come. It's such an interesting company. And as the company grew, you know, one thing that I think most people that come from tech or Silicon Valley find a little bit shocking is how data driven agriculture actually is. Can you talk a little bit about how farmers today have evolved to really leverage data to make better decisions in terms of planting and yield and ultimately how they run their business? Yeah, for sure. So I think with, um, you know, with FBN and row crop farmers specifically, and I would clarify by row crop, I'm referring to corn and soybeans and wheat, and these are crops that are mechanically harvested, um, and the price is set on a, on a board of exchange. So that's different from you know bananas, citrus stuff that's grown in California. But but for row crop farmers, um, there's data uh, regarding what is happening in their fields. So as you mentioned, you know what is the yield, what was applied on the crops, um, you know how many seeds per acre should you plant. So that's one bucket. But then another bucket is um, and it's, it's less sexy and it, it requires less technology sophistication, but it's just, what are people paying for inputs? So it's really just aggregation of price transparency data. And so FBN, you know, kind of tried to get uh, involved with both of these buckets at the same time. And what we found was on the, what we call agronomic side. So data related to what you planted, what you harvested, et cetera. Um, the, the farmers that were, that were data savvy were able to use this to, um, to make very meaningfully better management decisions. Um, but the barrier to entry there was, was quite high um, because a lot of farmers just aren't necessarily used to making decisions that way. And also to, in, in the farmer's defense, um, a lot of times there are so many variables that are unique to their operation or their region um, that it's, it's not altogether clear that you should be using aggregated data to make a decision. So I think the, you know, the summary there is there's, potentially very useful to farmers, a lot of potential, but it's it's bespoke to the farmer's use case. And then in the other bucket, you have the actual aggregation of what did farmers pay for different inputs? Um, and that's almost universally valuable. And I think when, when FBN first launched that, it was basically immediately disruptive in the market because you had people who 
uh, were 20 miles apart from each other that may be spending uh, you know, two to three times as much as their neighbor for things that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's a completely, there was no price transparency and um, simply by aggregating the information and disseminating it back you know, visually to farmers, uh, it empowered them to a degree that they really haven't been in, in decades. Well, it's funny because I, I make analogies to so many industries all the time of like, I wonder if the FBN properties of the give to get data model that, you know, price transparency to enable collective bargaining can be applied to a lot of different industries where there is a lot of opacity. And, uh, you know, I have yet to see another industry really own it because I think to your point, starting with farmers first probably did make a huge difference in this industry. But that price transparency piece to me seemed like a huge unlock for the industry. Yeah, for sure. And you have to go in heads first. So I think it's no secret. You know, FBN is fairly construed as sometimes you know, antagonistic to the industry. Um, and I think, you know, that that was very effective in getting the credibility we needed as a company for farmers to contribute, right, and to give their information in because we knew we were trying to work for them. Yeah, absolutely. And now, you know, this will kind of get into what you're doing at CISO, but as you were at FBN and really embedded your, embedding yourself in the technology to enable ag space, what were some aha moments of problems that farmers face today that were still not being addressed? Yeah, you know, I, one really interesting one was the, the more I understood about the, the, the problems farmers face on their operations, the more it became apparent that uh, most of them boil down to not having enough information. So farmers are super lonely. They're operating in vacuums. Um, and usually the, the main source of advice that they have is a local, what's called an agronomist. And it's basically a scientist that oftentimes also works for the same company that's selling them their product. So it's a little bit of a messy setup. You can think of it like, um, you know, you're going to your pharmacist who's also prescribing you your medication. Um, <laughs> And so they're, they're, they're starving for more information on best tactics, you know, how to best not only run their farm, but run the business side of things. And so, you know, we, we noticed this and decided to create a network. Um, really simple. The concept was just like stack overflow for farmers, where if you're a member of the FBN network, you can join, you can post questions, you can answer questions. Um, because we realized as, as much as we were doing a really good job with all the quantitative data we're collecting from the farm, uh, the qualitative data is just as valuable. Um, and so I think that was, you know, from an engagement standpoint, our most successful product launch um, and, you know, really got a lot of farmers who otherwise maybe weren't, weren't into using apps um, on pulling up FBN on their phone on a daily basis and, and learning and becoming better farmers. So I think that one really stands out to me. What were some of those examples of the qualitative data points that were impactful? Yeah, so one of them could be, um, you know, what th there's nuance when you're deciding what types of fertilizers, uh, what types of biologicals, what types of chemicals to put on your field. Um, and it could be dependent on, you know, let's say you plant corn one year and you rotate it with soybeans the next. Some people may go corn, corn, soybeans. Some people may go soybeans, corn, soybeans. And, you know, may notice that depending on that rotation, um, a slight tweak you know to your recipe will make a big difference in how effective a fertilizer application is so there's literally hundreds of examples like this that organically come up you know from the uh from the farmer user base themselves um and i think 
yeah, that would be in the agronomic side of things. And on the business side of things, honestly, just sharing information about what type of software do you use? Um, do you have a bookkeeper? Do you do that yourself? Um, you know, did anybody else struggle to actually make a profit last year in this region or am I alone? You know, and just knowing that you're not alone and, and hearing other people speak openly about the difficulties of farming, I think, um, is is a great outlet for, for people because, again, they're isolated and they're in rural areas and the culture is not necessarily to talk openly about the struggles that, that you're facing as a farmer. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, we, we even see similar patterns among our portfolio companies in that there's a lot of things about building a business where you need things like directors and officers insurance, or you need to get your first back office set up and accounting system. And everyone reinvents the wheel over and over again. So having a place where you can not only bring people, but aggregate data as to what are your peers using makes a ton of sense. And we've been kind of trying to do that. So that's, that's a funny analogy that actually applies quite well here. Yeah, absolutely. And so this year you decided to leave and essentially go out on your own. So tell, tell me why yeah. did you decide to leave and what are you working at now? Yeah, for sure. So about two years ago, I got connected with um, my co-founder, who's the CEO of CISO, Michael Gerges, um, through a mutual friend who knew I knew a lot about ag tech, obviously, and knew Michael was looking at some ideas in the space. Um, so we met up for coffee and hit it off and kind of periodically kept meeting up and riffing on different ideas. And what happened was, he, so his cousin is an organic farmer in Hollister, California. And through her, he learned about, um, you know, how acute the labor shortage is um, in agriculture. And I think you can argue pretty unequivocally, it's the biggest problem facing the industry um, today, especially in this region. And he also learned that, you know, there's a visa that um, called H2A that's uncapped and the adoption of it has, has grown um, significantly over the last decade. Um, and that a lot of farmers were looking for more help being able to access the program and, and understand how to, how to leverage that to address their biggest need. And so Michael kind of discovered this, this, um, this problem and as he explained it to me that the light bulb that went off in my head was super similar to what I think FBN did a really great job of discovering, which is if you are going to break in um, and try to gain market share in agriculture, uh, it's really important to have a powerful value prop um, that is going to have like a pretty objective, positive ROI. And so in FDN's case, um, we've built you know, tons of tools and services that touch every part of um, the P&L for a farmer, but it really started with, wait, their biggest, their biggest need is access to more information um, and price transparency and cheaper inputs. And so let's double down on that. And similarly with CISO, um, you know, farm, farmers need labor. And if we're able to go to the farm and say, hey, we can procure your, the, the, the product that you need the most um, and do it reliably and do it at a good cost, um, that should enable us to build, build credibility quickly in an industry that's you know, well known for being a little bit more difficult to break into. Hmm, interesting. And you mentioned this H2A visa. How long has that been in existence and what does it take today? What are the requirements to obtain that kind of visa? Yeah, so it's actually been around for a long time. It's been around for a few decades. Um, and it wasn't, the, the adoption of the program didn't really ramp up until the last 10 or 15 years for demographic reasons. So, um, you know, the population that, the, 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 the primary population that does this work, it's um, oftentimes undocumented 
um, immigrants. And there's been a declining birth rate in Mexico. There's been an improving economy in Mexico. Borders have gotten tighter. So there's a lot of different factors that have contributed to you know, the historical supply of labor going down. So as that has gone down, employers have become eager to find any viable alternative. And so H2A immediately comes to mind. And that's what's you know, kind of contributed to its growth. And so if you want to participate in H2A, um, you have to be an agriculture employer. So the work has to be you know, related to agriculture inherently. And then it has to be temporary in nature. So it's limited to 10 or fewer months. Um, so a lot of employers will, you know, an example could be you're running a vineyard and you need workers to come in, um, work on the vines, harvest the grapes, and it's predictably seasonable year after year. So you mean it may need to bring in workers for eight months of the year. So they'll do, do that on the visa, um, bring them up, they provide housing. And then from the worker's perspective, um, it's actually what, what, what we found um, pretty universally across the board, and we've interviewed hundreds of these workers, is so long as they're working with a good actor um, and, and a good employer, uh, it's a great opportunity to just make a lot more money than they otherwise would be able to because they have free housing and then they go back home and the money they earn here goes a lot further in Mexico. Um, so that's really a core part of our mission is finding all the people that want to participate in the program increasing accessibility to employment opportunities and then making sure employers are equipped with all the knowledge and the tools to be compliant with regulations and then create a great work environment for the workers themselves. And is it uniquely for people from Mexico or just any migrant labor coming from a different country? Yeah, it's not unique to Mexico at all. Um, workers come over from South Africa, from other Latin American countries, uh, the vast majority of the workers do come from Mexico just because practically it's easier. Um, you know, we share a border and they can get on a bus and come up. Um, but the, yeah, the, the, the pool of, of labor that's participating in the program um, has definitely been moving south. And so there's more participation from, from countries like you know, Guatemala um, and, and even further south from there. And you mentioned this is seasonal labor that's also predictable. So if I'm a vineyard and I hire 50 workers for a you know, seven-month stretch and they go back for five months, next year, do I have to reapply for those visas or does it carry over for the, it's the same worker? For, in, in almost all the cases you're reapplying, you can get an extension, but usually an extension involves switching employers. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very repeatable process. So as an employer every year, um, I have to go through what is a, a pretty onerous process to get the visa approved. Um, and as a worker, you know, I need to apply for the visa, get meet at the rendezvous po point and get, and get transported back up to the United States every year. And so you can imagine the, the logistics involved um, and the coordination required. Um, it's, you know, it's substantial. And so people are, are very eager to, to work with anyone that can help simplify the whole process and make it more manageable. I would bet. And as you mentioned, it happens year after year. In terms of exactly. where you're playing in the stack, are you also helping them find the labor or is that not necessarily a problem? It's more of securing the labor force. Yeah, we are. So, you know, we, we have, have started um, accumulating a, a pretty wide network of, of workers that like I said, you know, we've we've vetted and we've talked to and we have a, a pretty good idea of what they've done in the past, uh, what their work experience is, what their interest is, you know, where they want to go, what type of work they want to do. So it really depends on the employer. Like oftentimes employers um, have a group of workers who they like to bring back um, 
year over year. And so we'll help facilitate just getting those workers uh, to the worksite on time. Um, others, you know, it may be a combination of that and trying to recruit new workers. So that's definitely something that, that we're getting our hands dirty in this year. And I think the, the value we can add there will grow as we grow naturally, just as our, the network of people that are on our platform continues to increase. Yeah, and I would imagine this has natural network effects where the more labor you have, where you, you have data points on who they are, where they're from, what type of labor they can and want to do, and then also the demand, it starts to become a matchmaking exercise, which I would imagine you're pretty well suited to do. Exactly. Yeah, it's a coordination problem. And, you know, one thing that's really interesting about uh, you know, the labor coordination problem we're talking about that I wasn't fully aware of um, until this year is just how important prior experience is for a crop. So, you know, the, there's, a, there's a misconception that farm workers are, you know, you could say a homogenous workforce couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you know, and we've talked to a lot of ag labor professors. We've talked to, you know, dozens and dozens of employers extensively about this. And, you know, the estimates range, the estimates range from uh, two to 10 times more productive if someone has experience picking a certain crop than someone who doesn't. Uh, so it's really important to, to properly vet the workers. And then somebody is, you know, particularly adroit at picking, you know, sh strawberries or avocados or whatever it may be, make sure that they're going to get put in an employment opportunity where they're going to do a great job. Mm, interesting. Interesting. And, you know, this year has been a weird year for so many reasons, but in particular, I know farms and the supply chain has been really dramatically hit because of the pandemic. What have you seen kind of happen over this, the course of this year and how are farms trying to adapt? Yeah, so, you know, very uncertain in the beginning because the border uh, was was closed down. Nobody really knew what was going to happen to H2A. And then I think along with a lot of other, the most critical jobs in the economy, right, we collectively realized farm workers are about as essential as it gets. We need people to go pick the food that we eat. And so I think there was a lot of really great uh, cooperation, um, creative thinking between the government agencies, um, law firms, and the employers themselves to figure out how do we keep the ball rolling in a year where everything's going to be a lot more difficult. And so, you know, there's clearly more regulations in place, things like ensuring that the workers are properly distanced when they're, when they're sleeping in the housing and when they're being transported to the work sites, that they're being tested adequately. Um, so there's a lot more just kind of mental overhead, um, making sure that you are are doing all the things necessary so that the workers are going to be safe. But fortunately, the uh, the flow of workers has continued. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we're all optimistic that you know, because they're essential, um, uh, most of them will be vaccinated before too long and things can return to somewhat normal. I would imagine it also plays into the point you made before around how specialization in a specific crop can have a dramatic effect on yield in a time when, uh, you know, it was a little bit more complex to get the labor, but also I know that there were massive issues with supply chain. So just making sure that it was going, you know, each farm was able to produce as much as possible. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, sometimes it, it was a big issue for employers where you know, they're relying on restaurants for demand for their, for their produce and then the yeah. restaurants, are shut down. And so, you know, maybe there's not a buyer and minimally it's just really hard to forecast during COVID what is the demand for the crop going to be. So it's been a super challenging, challenging year for everyone. And, you know, something we're trying to do with all the customers we work with is just 
give them kind of a digest of all the most relevant points that they need to be aware of on how COVID will impact labor and their business overall and just be a thought partner with them on it. Yeah, you know, outside of COVID, the one other thing that is probably top of mind for your customers is change in administration. How does that affect things like subsidies for farms, labor, and even potentially visas? Is that something that is top of mind or not really for your customers? Um, I, I don't know that it's top of mind for our customers. I think, you know, being being a farmer is, is really, really difficult. Um, and they're very aware of, you know, what, what the administration's policies are going to be and want to be updated on them. But um, I think at the end of the day, you know, whoever is in office um, and whoever the Secretary of Agriculture is going to be, it doesn't change the fundamentals of what they're doing day to day. Like, uh, you know, the craft of being a great farmer and, you know, the knowledge you need to run a great business. So we're, you know, both the employers and ourselves as someone that's working with employers, we pay close attention to it. Um, but I don't think that we see anything fundamentally changing kind of the longer term trend of this program is expanding um, because we need workers. It's the most viable source of the workers. And I think across the aisle, everyone agrees that, um, you know, it's, it's really, really vital to the economy that we keep, keep uh, workers on these farms. Yeah, that's a fair point. You know, in terms of source of labor, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on some of the robotics that are being introduced into agriculture today and where you see that going and ultimately how you see that affecting uh, what the labor looks like over time. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I'm no expert by any means, but I think, um, you know, one one thing that uh, most people in agriculture are aware of is that every crop has a different degree of difficulty pertaining to how, how hard it's going to be to mechanize the harvest of it. Um, and so, you know, starting at the easiest, the, the crops we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, corn, wheat, soybeans, it's a homogenous commodity. So that's why it's been mechanized for decades. Now, something like avocados, it's really, really difficult because you need to have a lot of dexterity to pick the crop when it's at the right point and when it's ripe, not damage the crop, then also not move anything around the actual fruit or vegetable that you're picking um, so that you don't damage it. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of companies that are trying to tackle this. And I think certain crops um, they've had a lot of success with, but I also think there's a series of crops that make up a lot of what we eat where, um, most people in the industry feel like it's going to be at least 10, 15 years in the future before there's the potential of significant progress made. Um, and then I would say, you know, in, in, in the most ideal future, um, ideally all of this gets mechanized so that we can be, we can grow more food more efficiently. Um, but I don't think that that actually reduces, uh, necessarily the number of people that are working in the industry. So even if you have machinery, you still need people that are overseeing it, um, that are managing that whole process. And so, you know, we don't view any development there as necessarily changing our core mission, which is, you know, trying to help people working in the industry get exposure to better opportunities and then vice versa, helping employers manage their workforce more effectively. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've seen, I've seen a bunch of very cool robots that are trying to mechanize various parts of agriculture, but to your point around some of the more delicate fruits and vegetables, it's just nowhere near there yet, but we'll see where it goes. It's pretty crazy to, to watch. Uh, if, if you ever see somebody picking, you know, citrus on a ladder from a tree, uh, it, it is insane how fast their arms and their hands are moving. 
Um, and it like really gives you an appreciation for what they do. Like I, I had no idea until I'd seen it, you know, firsthand uh, about a year ago. Um, and it's, it's very different crop to crop. So, um, it's going to be, it's going to be fascinating to see yeah, what, what type of technology can develop for some of these, uh, cause it's very difficult. Yeah, difficult. And it's, it's very much a skill <laughs> as you, yeah, you mentioned before, sure. having done it, you know, if you do it for 10 years, obviously you're going to be a lot better at it than somebody that's just doing it. And, you know, even a machine that's just learning to do that task for the first time is probably going to be nowhere near as efficient as a, a person who's done it for a decade. Absolutely. In terms of agriculture labor is, I would imagine turnover is a huge issue and attrition in general. So when a when one of your customers is looking to recruit a workforce for that year's crop, what percentage of the people are returning um, to the farm versus net new? And and I guess how do you think about the the turnover rate um, as you build your recruiting part of the product? Yeah, so the turnover rate overall is going to vary so much um, region to region, crop to crop. It's hard to generalize, but I think you know, there's definitely a distinction between domestic workers and then those that are coming in through the H2A program. So with domestic workers, I would just say there's very high turnover. Um, and it's a constant challenge for employers to predict who's going to come back and what the quality of labor will be when it does come back. Um, hence the interest in something like H2A, which, you know, yes, it's more difficult to, to get the workers up here than to just recruit domestically. But you know that the workers are going to be here for a set period of time. Um, and so once you find a good worker through the H2A program, you know, it's very common to bring that worker back um, for many subsequent years. Um, as long as the worker um, has interest in continuing to do the work, like they usually enjoy the predictability of going back to the same place. And similarly, the employer um, you know, knows what they're getting with the workers. So I'd say very high turnover on domestic, um, less so with, with the predictability of the H2A program. Yeah, interesting. If you weren't working on CISO and this specific problem related to agriculture, what other problems do you think warrants tackling right now in, in the space? In, in agriculture specifically? Yeah, I'm just curious because you're so deep in this, this category. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, yeah, this is a little cliche, but everything that's gone around or gone on around um, you know, meat alternatives is super, super interesting. Um, you know, whether it's Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods, that's something that I've been following for a really long time. And, you know, th there's the environmental aspect that I find fascinating. Um, but I also think if, if we can get to the point where we're able to produce, um, you know, some of these alternatives to meat uh, that taste just as good, so the, there's, there's no kind of quality drop in the product, but are actually cheaper for the average consumer, that's what excites me the most. Um, and, you know, like I, I like shopping at Whole Foods. I like, um, you know, I like eating uh, good and fresh fruits and vegetables. But I think one thing you forget when you live on coastal cities like San Francisco, where I've lived the last six years, is most people um, don't have the luxury of, of spending a lot on food. And so they're going to be able, they're going to consume what they can afford. And so anything that's, that's making food um, that's going to be high quality, it's going to be nutritious, that's going to taste good be more affordable for, for the lower rung of, of the economy um, is, is super interesting to me. Um, and I think, you know, it's similar to, to FBN or, or what FBN would, would often talk about, um, 
you know, that's, that's something that American agriculture does a really good job of is it, it produces a lot of food, um, for millions and millions of people. And, um, that's, that's the most important thing moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I become quite obsessed with the impossible burgers recently. So I also, they're getting pretty good. Yeah. They're so good. Have you seen, are there farms that exist today solely to grow? You know, there's plant-based and then lab-grown meat in these um, non-animal-based meats. Are there farms dedicated to growing crops for the plant-based meats today, or is it just being sourced from traditional farms? Yeah, that's a good question. I I actually don't know, Um, but um, it it would not surprise me because a lot of those crops, so, uh, you know, things like chickpeas, they get contracted out before the beginning of the year. So it's less of a commodity. And so if, if I'm sure some of these companies are contracting directly with growers and they want, you know, reliable, predictable product from a certain region. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's, it's, it's unlikely to be fully ver- vertically integrated for most of them, but I think there's probably a lot of direct contracting going on. Yeah, it's a really interesting space and I, I'm with you. I, I hope this continues and that it becomes cheaper, more accessible and an added benefit is hopefully it's significantly better for the environment. Exactly. Yeah. Hopefully it's, uh, it, it, everyone wins. Well, this has been a phenomenally interesting conversation. The last question I like to ask people is, have there been any lessons or words of wisdom you've been given in your life or career that really stick with you? Um, yeah, I mean, this is kind of, it's maybe a little corny, but, um, you know, do your best. Don't, don't worry about the rest. Um, I think, uh, I think it's really easy when you're in a high stress, uh, startup environment, whether it's, you know, something we're doing right now, which is year two of a company versus, you know, a couple hundred employees to get caught up in a lot of things you can't control. Um, so I think just waking up every day and being really focused on, you know, a couple things you want to do very well and focus on, you know, two or three things. Um, and then things you want to improve on and have a growth mindset. Um, I think it's super important and it just helps make it, it makes you grow faster. It makes every day more enjoyable. Um, and it helps, uh, ensure, you know, you don't get burned out. I love that combination, essentially combination of stoicism and growth mindset. Very important. Yeah, exactly. Easier said than done. That's definitely for sure. Yeah. For um, for the listeners out there who want to learn more, where should they go to learn more about you and CISO? Um, so they can go to our website, uh, CISOlabor.com. Um, and yeah, I mean, over the next year, we're going to be launching um, a lot of new services and products for for farms. Um, so you know, if, if anybody had specific questions or is interested in learning more about the company or working for the company, um, you can email me directly. My email is just Jordan at CISOlabor.com, and that's S-E-S-O labor.com. Well, awesome. I really appreciate the time and learning a lot about the agricultural space, which I did not know, and uh, look forward to watching your progress and all the things you guys launched this year. Yeah, for sure. No, this was fun. And uh, again, appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Jordan.